the old saying, you know, practice makes perfect has some application. We probably want to revise that a little bit. Practice makes permanent. How you practice is just as important as how much time you spend practicing. Welcome to the Performance Mindset Podcast. And I'm your host, Amy Calandrino, CEO of Beyond Commercial. After a decade of providing expert commercial real estate advice and consultation to the business owners and investors I serve, I wanted to share some of the most inspiring and influential leaders I've met along the way. The goal of this podcast is to share valuable insights from these impactful individuals, as well as business and commercial real estate trends. If you want to grow, you're tuning into the right show. It's Amy here, and I'm back with another episode of the Performance Mindset Podcast. As you know, I've been counseling investors and business owners for over a decade. And after working with so many, I've learned that there is a resilient performance mindset to many of these successful individuals that help to drive this growth. So I launched this podcast to bring in other impactful and influential leaders. I had the pleasure of hearing from Doc Z just a few months ago at the Commercial Real Estate CREI Summit. And I'm one of those commercial real estate influencers that they bring out to the summit. And he was speaking to us as as part of one of our keynotes. And so I thought it'd be great to bring him on the show today. Welcome. Amy, thanks so much for the opportunity. I'm really looking forward to this. Awesome. So let me tell everyone a bit more about Doc Z. And that was his name when since he's been at West Point for now over 30 years. Full name is Nate Zinzer, and he is a world-class sports and performance mindset consultant for over 33 years, like I said, and he has spent his career training the top minds at the U.S. Military Academy as they prepare to lead and perform when the stakes are the very highest. He has extensive experience on advising professional Olympic and D1 collegiate athletes, surgeons, corporate team leaders, and military units. His research has been published and it's helped him to launch a highly successful magazine, Sports Illustrated for Kids. And he has a new book out to discuss called The Confident Mind, which we will get into more in the podcast. One thing Doc Z has come to understand is there's one key trait above everything, and that's confidence. Whether you're going into a mission on combat, you're on the tennis court, or delivering a sales pitch, you have to perform your best so you're certain that your abilities will flow. And minimizing any kind of fear, doubts, and confusion helps you to perform to the highest. So let's just get right into it. So. Where did you grow up and how did you end up at West Point? Okay. Well, that spans only about 35, 40 years. Uh, <laughs> I'll see if I can give you a quick answer. The first part is easy. I grew up in Northern New Jersey in a suburb. I played Little League Baseball and Pop Warner football. I was fascinated by sport. I just loved the idea of competing and winning. And I wanted to be I actually wanted to be a professional football player for a lot of years. Evolution or God or dumb luck did not give me the genetic equipment with which to do that. 
although it did equip me to play the game of lacrosse and to become a state wrestling champion and to pursue elite level mountaineering and Japanese martial arts um, for a long, long period of time at a pretty high level. I got into psychology from the back door, the door from the gymnasium, the door from the wrestling room. I was not necessarily an academically gifted kid. I wasn't, I wasn't the kind of kid who won the science fair project with, you know, building a, a rat maze or a, an analytical tool as a young man. I got into psychology because it became very clear to me that certain intangible factors were just as important as your genetic equipment, as your, as your work ethic was. We all know you got to be talented. We all know you got to work hard. But I saw from a very young age that the most talented and hardest working athletes weren't necessarily the ones who rose to the top. I went to a very small private boys school, which had a surprisingly successful soccer team. And the reason why it was so successful was not because it cast a wide net and recruited talented athletes, but because the coach was a master psychologist in getting kids as young as, say, seventh grade to believe that if you hang in there, you're going to be a really good player. Mm. You hang in there. If you stay with the sport, maybe do a camp, you can probably be a starter come 11th or 12th grade. And of course, not everybody was able to do that, but there was this, there was this ethos. There was this expectation. There was a institution-wide self-fulfilling prophecy that the team was going to be great year after year. Mm. And that was, that was my first hint into the psychology of elite performance. So throughout my undergraduate years, throughout all the different performance areas that I was interested in, I saw the importance of these intangible factors playing out. I saw perfectly capable climbers become petrified with fear in the middle of a route. And it is no fun being on a rope with those people when that happens. Through my martial arts training, it was very clear that there is a state of mind that anyone can attain if you put the right time and effort into it. And in that state of mind, you're pretty darn invincible. You're not going to be able to dodge bullets, but you are, <laughs> but you are pretty darn invincible. I pursued, after several years, a PhD in sports psychology at the University of Virginia. And this was in the days where sports psychology was taught as a sports science right in there in the same department with the degrees in motor learning, exercise physiology, teaching and curriculum and physical education, sports psychology as a sports science. And I earned that degree. I was teaching at East Stroudsburg University in Pennsylvania. I've prepared myself for a standard academic career where I would teach classes, mentor graduate students, and conduct a research track. When I got wind of a job that was opening up at West Point, at the U.S. Military Academy. They had established a fledgling sports psychology training cell, hmm. originally limited to just the members of the Academy's varsity football team, a Division I athletic team. But it had grown, and now the basketball coach and the lacrosse coach and the swim coach, they all wanted a little piece of that. So the visionary gentleman who was who established this his name was lewis choga 
he decided he needed a civilian sports psychology expert to add to his staff to lend some long-term stability to the teaching faculty in this little cell. Um, and lo and behold, they picked me. And that was in that was in the summer of 1992. And I remained at West Point for the next 30 years. Remarkable opportunity. I'm very grateful for it. Wow. Wow. Since so over that time, so much has changed, you oh. know, with respect to technology and sports. Can you talk about how that has helped sports and then also how that has become perhaps like a distraction and may have made your job a little harder? <laughs> okay. Um, a very fair question, a very important question, because, you know, I started in at West Point in 1992. We didn't have personal computers on every desk. We didn't have any internet, really. We had old-fashioned receptionists making appointments in a spiral-bound notebook. Everything, of course, has changed. Everything is now electronically communicated. And what I th that has helped the speed with which we can do things. Mm -hmm. It's also made people a lot less patient, a lot less patient. If I want an answer to something, I can get it in 10 seconds. Whereas once upon a time, if you wanted an answer for something, you might have to walk across post to the library and you might have to actually open an old fashioned card catalog or the reader's guide to periodical literature or all these old fashioned now totally arcane research tools. It required a little more patience to get an answer back in those mm. days because of the access to information these days. All of us, especially young people who have grown up with access to the internet, they want an answer quick. And if they don't get an answer quick, they're disappointed. Also related to that, there is this incredible ability to compare yourself with everybody else. Yes. How many likes, how popular are you on Facebook? And that's, that presents its own problems because it makes people increasingly self-conscious about themselves. And one of the things that's very important in confidence for sport performance is that you can't be preoccupied with yourself. You know, your mind has to be somewhat free of that so that all your well-trained skills can express themselves at the moment of truth. So our technology has made us smarter and quicker and faster. I don't think it's made us any deeper. I would agree with that. I mean, when I came up with the question, I was thinking to myself, if you were an athlete or someone performing 20, 30 years ago, or let's just say pre-2007 when the iPhone came out, you didn't have all of these social media apps where people are critiquing you and it's it's going out like a spider web effect everywhere. So it's not just, you know, who you're performing in front of. If you had someone booing you, now the boos can just echo on ad infinitum. And then also you you just can't really eradicate that from the, the internet. I would think someone who isn't as disciplined or maybe could be susceptible to hearing those reverberating negative vibes, it could have a, a terrible impact on them. And that has been well documented in a number of case studies no, across the board. There's a there's a wonderful but tragic book entitled What Made Maddie Run? And it's about mm -hmm. a young woman 
who eventually took her life, even though she had so many gifts and so much success mm -hmm. and the incessant comparison between what is and what she, what she thought should be, could be, eventually drove her to a suicide. And the role that social media took in that unfortunate transition is pretty strong. I would think, too, that institutions or academic institutions or even um, sports organizations, do you find that any of them are coming up with training to try to help their athletes to, to cope with that? Oh, yeah, w without a doubt. A lot of college programs are trying to inform young men and women about these kinds of dangers and about the way you can be misrepresented on social media. And so there's, there's plenty of encouragement to tone down your, you know, your internet profile so, so that it can't be misinterpreted. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a continual struggle. I mean, that's, that's how we met each other is through one of those, you know, conferences where you're constantly out there and exposed, but then you have to be very strategic about how you do that. So, yeah, we talked a little bit about how to protect athletes and others from those types of dangers. Um, well, your focus has been in sports. We we talked a little bit in your intro about the applications for mindset and confidence can be applicable in leadership. You want to talk a little bit about that? Certainly. The applications of sports psychology principles, mental toughness training principles, call it what you like, those were apparent to me all throughout my training at the University of Virginia. It's not just about an NCAA Division I athlete. It's about the business student. It's about the pre-med student. All of these principles in terms of building and maintaining confidence, achieving quality focus, being resilient in the face of setbacks, managing stress, those skills are valuable in any performance endeavor. I remember leading an, a discussion group during those years at Virginia, as all of us grad students had to do, and there was there was one varsity athlete in the group. He was a member of Virginia's men's lacrosse team, a powerhouse program. There were two recreational athletes. These these were just, you know, undergraduate kids who wanted to play and have better time playing. There was another woman who was a professional water ski performer. <laughs> there was another member of the group who was in the business school. And he knew that entrepreneurship required this kind of confidence. And there was another young woman who wanted to be a professional fashion model. So right from, right from the start of my indoctrination, the applications outside the world of sport were very, very clear. No place was that clearer than my work at West Point, where the product that we are producing are young lieutenants for the Army, leaders of character who unfortunately may be called upon to lead soldiers in combat. And mm. boy, do we want those people to be confident, focused, composed. You know, to me, the ability to do that is absolutely essential if you're going to be effective in your work. Tomorrow morning, I will be presenting to Grand Rounds at Vanderbilt University's neurosurgery program. Mm. So I'm talking to a bunch of people who are learning how to drill into your skull, remove bad things, repair things, 
boy, you, do you want them to be at the top of their game? Yes. You don't want there to be any hesitation whatsoever. No, not at all. You have to believe that you are fully capable of executing each stage in the surgical procedure. And you got to believe that you can handle any strange anomaly that might surface. And unless you have that level of certainty, you better stay out of my brain. Thank you very much. <laughs> Mine too. Mine too. One reason I reached out to you was you recently authored a book. It is The Confident Mind, A Battle-Tested Guide to Unshakable Performance. What inspired you to write the book? Because of the number of people who would come to my office who were rather accomplished in their field, but they would say, gosh, I just, I just don't have the confidence I used to have. Mm. Where did... I, 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 I just don't feel it anymore. And this happened often enough that I said, okay, maybe, uh, maybe this is the book that I have to write. Yeah. And so I devoted a good five years to the research, revision, writing, etc., that eventually turned into the January 2022 release. Well, let's talk about a few of the concepts of the book. I don't want to go through everything and and steal you know any thunder, but I certainly got considerable value from the book, and I, I feel like it's going to be one of those guides to go back to because you know having confidence, in, at least in my field, is something I have to continually you know work on. And so, let's talk first about the ten thousand hour rule for those that aren't familiar with it. Certainly. The 10,000-hour rule was established by a researcher, Anders Ericsson, originally looking at the education and emerging expertise of classical musicians, uh, particularly violinists. The term was later popularized by writer Malcolm Gladwell, who, according to Ericsson, took a few liberties with the, with the concept. You know, the idea is that you're going to have to put in roughly 10,000 hours mm. of deliberate practice before you achieve a level of expertise in your field. It's a somewhat loose number in that there are experts who've only put in 5,000 and there are people who put in 20,000 and they have not yet achieve that level of success. So it's it's somewhat arbitrary, but I think it's important in that, you know, expertise is not just going to happen to you. There are certain habits of practice that are very, very important, okay? Your practice has to be deliberate. It has to be right at the edge of your ability. It has to challenge you. In some case, that means it's not going to be a lot of fun because you're not going to be working on the things that you're already good at. You're going to have to do the things that you're not quite as good at. The old saying, you know, practice makes perfect has some application. We probably want to revise that a little bit. Practice makes permanent. How you practice is just as important as how much time you spend practicing. And Dr. Erickson, he has a book out entitled peak. It goes into some of the specifics of those practice considerations. Any of your readers and our viewers who are curious about the 10,000 hour rule, 
and its real applications as opposed to its sort of popularization. I recommend the book Peak by Anders Ericsson. Yeah. And I first learned about it, I think I was watching 60 Minutes or 2020, and they were showing someone that picked up something new. I think it was golf at the time. And that was why it made it so interesting to me. I've I've been trying to be a good golfer for, I'd say, nine years yeah. off and on through all types of things. Right. See, and that nine, is a very challenging game. Not Nine years off and on. Dr. Erickson would say that you're... De- the level of deliberateness in your practice is somewhat. Yes. Okay. Yeah. There was an interesting story related to that about a a fella who decided that he's going to put the 10,000 hour rule to the test. He's going to become a professional golfer. He's going to invest in those 10,000 hours. He doesn't particularly like golf. He's not particularly talented at the game, but he's just going to make a go at it. I don't think he's succeeded yet. I think, I think was, there might need to be a little element of passion, though, too. So Precisely. Okay? Yeah. Unless your practice contains a quality of intensity and passion, it's not necessarily going to produce expertise. Yeah. So, so, so this is where the idea of, oh, okay, all I got to do is invest the 10,000 hours. No, not necessarily. You're going to have to invest as many hours as are necessary but they need to be intense. They need to be, yes. they need to have an element of passion. Otherwise the change in your nervous system doesn't seem to occur. I would agree with that until I really, it's about three years ago, I got much more intense and deliberate about it. And I finally broke 100, which is a pretty big deal. Most amateur golfers don't. And then, um, I'm in a ladies golf league now, which I really enjoy weekly and finally making some birdies and par, you know, consistently, but, and even more now that I've done some breathing exercises, which we'll talk a little bit more about, but let's talk a little bit about myelin production and why that's important and how, and how that like occurs. Cause you know, I found it very fascinating, the science of that. Myelin is a phospholipid. That's a fancy name for a kind of fat. Your nervous system, those billions of neurons in your skull, in your spinal cord, going out to innervate, inform, stimulate muscles, glands, organs, etc. That substance is produced by your nervous system, and it serves essentially as insulation. You, You can think of electrical wiring. The thicker the insulation around a a wire, the faster the electricity travels down that. Every time you rehearse a golf swing or a tennis serve or a scale on the piano or a calculus problem, every time you do that, the nerve cells, the nerve pathways that are, that command the execution of that skill, get a little bit more myelin produced. The use of those neural pathways produces this substance. And if you do it over and over and over again, at some point, that layer of fat insulating that neural impulse pathway is going to get faster. The amount of insulation is going to be big enough so that that impulse moves quicker. And that's really what skill is. It's just the coordinated, smooth operation, smooth transition of a neural impulse 
from some place in your skull down through your spinal cord out to your fingers so that you can tie mm. your shoes or comb your hair or wrap your hands around that golf club comfortably. All skill is a function of your nervous system. Your nervous system develops this, these smooth pathways through practice. It takes a while to get that. But once you put in sufficient repetitions, and, I, and there's no magic number, mm -mm. once you put in sufficient repetitions, the myelin develops to the point where now it really moves quickly. So you got to be patient enough to do the work to get your nervous system to operate at maximum speed. It's, it's a process. But you would think, you know, with, with anyone in sports or, or, or in any field, that at least if you have that baseline of reactivity or knowing how to do whatever skill it is, then when other things arise, it, it will make it easier for them. Indeed. You have a, you have a well-established pathway. It, it, it's like a, a trail through high grass that you have walked on many, many times. First few times, you know, it's, it's hitting you in the knees and the, and, and the bugs are flying up in your face. After, after many repetitions, that path has been worn down so that it's very easy to walk and you could do it with your eyes closed or in the dark. This is what we're trying to establish when we're talking about, you know, playing the violin, doing neurosurgery, doing high-level sports. We want to encourage that level of skill expertise. So we want to practice properly, lay down that myelin, and we got to make very sure that we are not thinking about the mistakes, the imperfections, because when we do that, we activate other pathways. <laughs> And they're getting repetitions too, depending on how we think. Oh, no. Yes, that's yeah, true. Right. That's so, true. so, so, so yeah. you can almost have two competing sets of neural pathways with regard to the performance of a, you know, a certain wedge shot or a certain play in football. And if you have a lot of the wrong stuff firing at the same time that you've got the right stuff firing, there's going to be some confusion. So Absolutely. let's think about what you want. Let's practice what you want. And let's make sure that when it's time to execute, you're completely tuned in. Here's my target. I'm fascinated by it. I want the ball to go here. I want the sound to be this way. So I'm consciously feeding my unconscious neuro neural system activity. I'm making sure that all of that is consistent. And that's how you give yourself a good chance of executing well. Absolutely. I would, I would agree. I'm going to real quick, uh, Finn, I uh, just want to do a time check. We are about 36 minutes in. Do you have a hard stop? I want to maybe just focus on a couple more questions. I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, no, I do not have a hard stop. Uh, okay. We, we can continue until, you know, top of the hour. Okay, that's perfect. Fine. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, no Finn, problem. we will... Go back in. So, okay. I laughed out loud. I was reading the book and you made a reference to Lloyd from Dumb and Dumber to the mindset. So to those listening, can you uh, share that analogy? Yeah, that, that may be the, the video clip that I have showed more often than <laughs> any other in my, in my years. Uh, this is from a movie that was released 
gosh, I'm thinking 94, maybe. I don't have the exact date. The actor's name is Jim Carrey. He is a comic genius. I'm sure many of your listeners will have seen the movie Dumb and Dumber, Liar Liar, Bruce Almighty. Uh, the man is a comic genius. And in this particular movie, in the Dumb and Dumber movie, he plays a rather unsophisticated adult, a guy who has the worldly wisdom and the common sense of, you know, maybe a 10-year-old, even though he seems to be in his late 20s or early 30s. And, and he is gently but firmly rebuffed by a woman who he is really attracted to, a woman who he has literally crossed the country from, I think, Providence, Rhode Island, all the way to Aspen, Colorado, having had all kinds of strange misadventures. He's finally gotten to see her. They are finally alone in a room, and he lays all his cards out on the table. He says, Mary, you know, please give me an honest answer. What are the chances of you and I ending up together? And Mary, not wanting to break the guy's heart, tries to let him down easy. She says, well, you know, your odds aren't very good. And Lloyd says, you mean not good like one out of a hundred? And she hesitates and gulps and says, no, more like one out of a million. And you can see on Lloyd's face, he just, he's completely lost for a moment. And then you see his eyes brighten and his smile widens. And he goes, so you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> and he gets all excited and says, this is great. I read you. Okay, okay, okay. And that ability to filter, if you will, reality and filter out all the disappointments and all the factors that are against you, but be really motivated by the chance, the opportunity. That is a very important skill, okay? We all, as human beings, operate on our own personally defined reality. It's what we do. It's just a question of whether the reality that we define for ourselves and create for ourselves is helpful in terms of us getting what we want in this world. Really good athletes, really good business people, really good performers across the board have a well a very functional mental filter. They're going to let in all kinds of evidence that says they're on the right path, they're making progress, they're getting better, they see their improvements, they, they feel good about their improvements, and at the same time that filter helps them release or restructure or reinterpret setbacks, mistakes, difficulties, which, let's face it, are part of human life in this particular imperfect physical existence that we're all engaged in. So I just loved it when I heard Lloyd say, so you're telling me this chance. I am focused on my opportunity. I'm focused on the things that energize me. Even if there's only one of those things and a bazillion opposing factors, I'm going to keep my attention on that one opportunity. And that's, that's a useful skill. 
Yeah. I shared with you a bit of my background of why I started this whole, you know, podcast and a lot of the most influential leaders have had only just a few pathways that they could take to to continue forward, but keeping that focus and that confidence to move on. But I, I use that line frequently, which is and, and perhaps because no matter what, I'm like, oh, so you're telling me there's a chance. So <laughs> like we're, we can make a deal or whatever it is that we're doing. I loved the idea of a top 10 poster. I have not done this yet. And Marissa, who had introduced us. She, she has one. Can you talk a little bit about that? And, you know, would that be a static document, a evolving document, or what does that look like? Okay. The top 10 poster is an exercise of your mental filter. It's a way of you looking back at your resume, so to speak, and listing out the 10 best accomplishments of your personal or professional life. You know, what projects have you been in charge of that went well? What contributions have you made to your organization? If you're an athlete, what are your 10 most memorable moments playing your sport? Well, I, my, you know, my first game where I started, my first touchdown or my first home run or the time our team beat our big rival when we were the underdog. Um, a list of those moments. Print it out in pretty big letters with some nice color and a photograph or two, but position where you see it is a way of you building up a sense of your own efficacy. It's a way of you getting in touch with, hey, look how far I've come. Look at these things that I've established. I urge that for pretty much everybody. Because if you if you don't have a sense of how far you've come, if you don't get a sense of how good you indeed are, then it's really easy for you to question yourself and doubt yourself in a moment of performance. Now, as to your question, whether it's a static document or a, a, a live document and a developing document, um, the answer is, yeah, I can have that 10 best moments in my past. But maybe something's going to happen this week that I want to put up there on the top. Okay, so you can either make it your top 11 or you can you can just sort of rewrite, you, you know, you can rewrite the, your top 10, you know, it's, yeah. you know, the top 10 billboard hits of the month or the week. It, it can change. I see the top 10 list as a way of really looking and carefully filtering your long-term memories. I encourage people to do a perhaps shorter term memory filtering, filtering exercise. Basically every day for hmm. a working person, at least every week, say, if you're a football player, all right, what are the best things that happened today? Where did I invest quality effort? What little successes did I achieve? What does it look like I'm making progress in? Just asking yourself those three questions and jotting down effort, success, progress, ESP. That's a two-minute exercise. But just like looking back at your top 10, it's a way of allowing your experience to work for you. It's a deliberate search for evidence that you've got something to base your confidence on. Looking for reasons to believe in myself. Yep, I overcame procrastination to get that report written today. Yep, I succeeded in talking to this person and getting an okay on this project. And yeah, I'm making progress 
in developing my relationships here, or I'm making progress in understanding this part of our product line, etc., etc., etc. I'm looking for that evidence. Okay. And I think this is really important. It's one thing to just sort of wish for success. It's another thing to deliberately look at what you're doing to make that success more and more possible. I used to keep track of my progress, like in these composition books and file them away. And recently I read a book by one of the top execs over at Disney. And he talked about switching to a day timer. And now that I have this like day timer, I can jot different, you know, ideas in it and, and, and then be able to, it's like a monthly one and then be able to file them back away and then review, review them again. And I, I like that because it's a bit more of like a tactile way of keeping track of, of things and it's small and you can carry it around. And now you've, we've talked about some of the folks that you've worked with, including Eli Manning. I really liked when you were talking about Deion Sanders and his five statements. Is there anyone in particular that stands out with you with respect to performance? Certainly. Number four of the five for your audience, Deion Sanders played defensive back in the National Football League. He was one of the very best players in that position, okay? The reality of being a defensive back is that you have to run backwards and make an informed guess as to how the receiver on the offensive side is going to move and try to be all over that guy should the ball come in that direction. And so it's a very sort of reactive position. Okay, the receiver pretty much knows where he's going to go. He knows when the quarterback is likely to throw the ball to him. So he's operating with a lot more, I guess you could say, certainty. The defender is operating much out of an informed guess. He studied film. He knows the opponent's tendencies. He knows what the offense is likely to do, but he's never 100% sure. He's always, he, he has to react. Dion, however, has says in this wonderful interview that I found years ago, that when the ball is up in the air, it was meant to come to him, the defender. Hmm. That's the attitude a defensive back should have, says Dion Sanders. When the ball is in the air, it was meant for me. It was meant for me. That ball was meant to end up in my <laughs> hand. And, you know, on the surface, I mean, that is absolutely crazy. Because the opposing team has spent all kinds of preparation time doing, coming up with ideas and schemes and pass routes and situations so that they keep the ball away from Dion Sanders. <laughs> yes. Because they don't want him to get the ball. Right. Right. But Dion, and I, I, I really credit, I, I think this is a very important way to think. He believes that any uncertain situation, such as the ball in the air arcing through the sky, that's an uncertain situation. The ball could fall on the turf. The ball could be caught. The ball could be batted down. The ball could be intercepted. Deion Sanders is convinced that that uncertain situation is meant to come out in his favor. What? I think that is a wonderful way to think. Very unconventional, not necessarily logical. But if you think the ball is meant to come to you, you're probably going to break on it with a little mm. more determination than if you think, oh, the ball's going to that guy. No, that ball was meant for me. This promotion was meant for me. 
I'm operating on that assumption. Okay. I'm operating mm. on the assumption that I'm going to make that team. I'm going to make that starting lineup. I'm going to be in, in the all-star game at the end of the season. That's, that's for me. And when I own it, when I possess it that way in my own mind, I go after it with more genuineness and more authenticity. You know, that made me think one thing I never do. I, I, I never give up. If my client really, really, really wants a property, even if it goes under contract, we had a property and there's an area called Winter Gardens, the west of Orlando, and it's growing by leaf and leaps and bounds. And it's just really lovely. And he really, really wanted this property. And it went under contract. And I said, you know what? Let's still send a contract. And I'm going to put a love letter in it just as to why you would be the most amazing buyer for this property. And let's just send it. And let's just see. Because, you know, properties like this don't come up very often and we'll just never see. Get a call about 15 days later. The other person, you know, did not come to fruition, didn't do that. And she says, we love your buyer so much. We're not even going to put it back on. We're not even going to put it back on the market and let's just get it under contract. And then we close 60 days later and now we're doing a um, redevelopment project there and transforming it into 30,000 square feet of retail and bringing together all these businesses. And it's amazing. But I see it very often in commercial real estate. So many of my peers are like, well, they they, they're in an LOI with someone else or they're in a contract with someone else. But I think that, you know, it didn't take me that much effort, just maybe another 20 minutes and just have it out there just, just in case if it's, if it's meant for us, then that way it could boomerang back. And then, you know, sometimes people choose not to list with me either. And I don't take offense to it. They just decided and I've seen it come boomerang back to me. So... There you go. You you operated from a certain degree of determination. This this can work out. This can work out for me by this. You know the same way Lloyd in Dumb and Dumber. Is <laughs> yeah. saying, oh, this this romantic relationship can work out in my favor. I've got a one in a million chance. It can work out. I think I'll pursue it as opposed right. to oh one in a million chance. Okay, I'm done. Sorry. You know most people won't pursue a course of action unless they perceive like a, a 50-50 chance of success. Yeah. Okay. Um, boy, that leaves a lot of money on the table, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's led to a lot of, a lot of success and, you know, you just, you just never know. I, I don't want to learn, burn any bridges and want to do the best yeah. that I can do. So, well, let's talk about when we, when you were the keynote speaker, you went a bit into breath work. Do you want to share anything that our listeners can do to improve their connection with mind and body through breath? Certainly. I think it's very important that all of us human beings learn to breathe effectively and actually practice breathing effectively. If your audience is curious about a book on this subject, I recommend Breathing for Warriors. Hmm. The author's name is Belisa Vranek, V-R. A-N-I-C-H, wonderful lady who started out as a child psychologist, but she noticed that as children went through the years from five to eight to 10, just the way they breathed changed. Hmm. They no longer used the musculature that they were born with in order to maximize the amount of oxygen they could draw in with the breath and to maximize the amount of carbon dioxide that they could breathe out 
when they exhale. You exercise those muscles correctly. You really bring yourself into the present moment. Mm -hmm. And you really access a lot of your sort of unconscious capability. Okay? I know that sounds perhaps science fiction-y, but try it, people. Okay? A common misunderstanding is that breathing is accomplished with your lungs. No. Breathing is accomplished by the muscular action that either squeezes your lungs to expel air or opens up your lungs to bring air in. You have a very sophisticated set of muscles, the sole purpose of which is not to help you move, but to help you breathe. You have a very large muscle separating your thoracic from your abdominal cavity. It's called the diaphragm. It's, it's the second most important muscle in the body next to the heart. But we never think to exercise it because we, it doesn't change the way we look. You know, mm. when we exercise our shoulders and our abs and our glutes, well, it changes our outward appearance in obvious ways. You exercise your diaphragm. It doesn't change what you look like on the outside, but it enables you to draw more air in. When the diaphragm muscle contracts, it's kind of like a dome. When it flattens and tightens, that creates space in the lungs, air rushes in. You also have a set of muscles in your rib cage that lift the ribs up and out a little bit, and that further helps the lungs expand. And then on the exhale, you have your abdominal muscles and another set of rib muscles that when they contract, they basically squeeze the midsection. The diaphragm muscle relaxes. That pushes air out of the lungs. So by exercising these muscles, you get a lot more air in. And the act of paying attention to this breath gets you out of thinking about the consequences of your mm. action or the memory of what happened, you know, two minutes ago, five minutes ago, or on your very last swing of the golf club or your very last swing of the tennis racket. It brings you into the moment. It brings you into the moment. So I encourage people to, when they're beginning to think about breath, start with an exhale, tighten your abs back towards your spine. Feel as if there's like a a python squeezing you. And now relax that sensation. Let your waistline expand and see if you can feel this downward movement of your diaphragm muscle pushing down on your stomach and your intestines, pushing down, bringing in the feeling is like I'm inflating an inner tube around my waist. I want that feeling of 360 degree expansion in my waist. And now I want to tighten those muscles again. And I want to feel the python squeezing me. And now I want to relax that squeeze. And I want to inhale. This is a very different feeling than the typical sensation of taking a deep breath, which for most of us is. Yeah. In here, as opposed to down here. Okay, a good inhalation is down and out. A good exhalation is up and in. Okay. And we, we typically don't think of it that way. Um, 
just following those guidelines, you could have a remarkable experience strengthening your breathing musculature. Yeah, I even noticed, you know, you try, you just even breathe, like practicing breathing now. You just all, are focused have, on that. All you have to do is sit comfortably, feet flat on the floor, or stand comfortably and experience this expansion and contraction of your waist. Not expansion and contraction of your collarbone and neck and up here. That's not where the breathing action really takes place. It takes place lower in the body. And every time those breathing muscles set up for an inhalation, we're pushing down on the contents of our stomach. We're basically expanding our waist. And then we tighten it, tighten it, tighten it, tighten it, and send it back out. Um, 10 pounds of muscle solely devoted to breathing. 10 pounds of muscle solely devoted to breathing. Do you develop those muscles? Most people don't. I recommend that you do. And I recommend that you use a breath as part of your pre-shot routine, your focusing for the moment. Okay? I'm about to serve. I want to see where I want that ball to go. I breathe. Mm. I'm about to step into this negotiation. Or I'm even at a pause in the negotiation. You know, I'm taking, I take that sip of water. I do a couple of these breaths. Now I'm ready to continue. And so many applications. Yeah. Wow. Well, we've only scratched the surface. There is so much more in, in the book. And I think there's so many opportunities to connect with you. Well, first of all, is there anything else you'd want to share today? And, and if not, then also what's the best way for people to contact you? Sure. One thing that has become very apparent to me in like the last six months or so is the fact that we as human beings have a certain built-in negativity bias. Mm. This is a survival mechanism that our primitive ancestors needed. We got we got to kind of look out for stuff. We got to be a little bit worried, okay? You know, just like a mom is worried about, okay, where's my kid? Is she walking across the street? You know, uh, okay, I mean, there's a, there's a degree to which this is just built into our human biology. That biological bias, I think, has been fed by our social system, by our educational system. We are encouraged to think about all the things that could go wrong and remind ourselves of our biggest failures under the mistaken impression that that's going to motivate us to succeed. When what really tends to activate your drive, my drive, is not the memory of a failure or a setback, but the memory of a success or the tantalizing vision of a possibility. So I've become really sensitive to how powerful that negativity bias is, hmm. which, which means that, you know, negative thoughts are going to come back. Yeah. You know, you, your mind is going to flash to a problem, a setback, a difficulty. Okay. But you can be very good at recognizing that your mind is doing that. And just like, okay, there's a mosquito buzzing around my head. I'm going to swat it and get rid of it. And that's what I do with the negative thoughts. Hmm. I recognize them. I swat them. I get rid of them. I replace them 
with an item from my top 10 list. I replace it with an item from that daily ESP, Effort Success Progress, that I've been doing. And, you know, a minute later, another mosquito may come around and you got to brush that one away. Just because these negative thoughts occur, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It just means you're human. Yeah. And I, th and I, and I think a lot, a lot of people have asked me, oh, God, why can't I, why can't I get rid of this negative stuff? Well, because you're human. It's part of being human. It's, it's your job to acknowledge it, to stop it, and replace it with something else. And you can do that as often as you need to do that. I've done yeah. this before. Like, and it's like, it's yeah. gone. <laughs> or put, you know, put a rubber band around your wrist. And when you have the negative thought, you recognize it and you pull the rubber band and you release it and it snaps back against your wrist and that snap out of it, girl. You know? Yeah. Snap out of it. And if I have to do that a hundred times a day, fine, do it. Okay? Yeah. Um, two things about this. You've got negative thoughts as a human being. So does your competition. Yeah. So does your opponent. All you have to do is be better at working with it, better at recognizing it, better at stopping it, better at replacing it than your opponent or your competition. You do that, you create an advantage for yourself. That's really I, I, important. I absolutely agree. I, I like, I'm glad that we ended on that and shared that. Is I, I do think there is a fixation throughout academia and, and otherwise it's pervasive, you know, in our culture to, to focus on this negative. And if we can be more intentional about flipping the script, I think it could be beneficial to everybody. Absolutely. That is huge. Just as we have a negativity bias, we also have a certain optimism bias in our biology. Mm. Okay. Our primitive ancestors had to maintain that we will find clean water we will be able to construct a shelter that will get us through this winter. We yep. will be able to feed our clan. So that's in us too. And let's, let's acknowledge both of these factors. Let's deal with the negativity bias and let's really feed the optimism bias. Do those things continuously. You create wonderful levels of confidence. That's powerful. So how can my listeners get a hold of you? What's um, the best way? NateSensor.com, small yep. website. Inquiries there will get to me via email. I would love to communicate with uh, some of your listeners. I'm going to make sure that in our show notes that we include a link to your book, as well as you reference Breathing for Warriors, as well as another book, Peak. So if there's anything like that, we'll make it easy for anyone listening to to find those those resources. And I do think that it's a it's a great text for anyone, whether they're in business, sports or, or otherwise. So, well, again, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you joining today. Um, thank you, Amy, for a wonderful interview. Thank you for being so well prepared. And, uh, <laughs> my, my best wishes to you and all your listeners. Oh, awesome. All right. Bye, everyone. And be sure to like, subscribe, share, download all the things so that we can continue to reach others. Make it a great day. Bye.